Well, we've passed Capaneus on the sands. We've heard about the old man of Crete from Virgil. We've passed almost all the way through Canto 14 of Inferno, this strange canto. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, in which we slow walk through Dante's comedy, and we are up to Inferno, Canto 14, as I said, and the very end, lines 121 through 142. This is a long canto. It is one of the longer ones so far that we've encountered. There will be much longer ones ahead, but one of the longer cantos so far because it is just so packed with information, and Dante has slowed the pacing down a bit. If you don't know where we are, you might want to go back and catch where we've been, at least go back to the episodes on Canto 12 and start down here through the circles of violence, the rings of the circle of violence, the seventh circle of hell, or go back all the way to the beginning and walk with us in this quantum reality of a podcast that's always happening. Otherwise, join us. We're about to finish off Canto 14, lines 121 through 142. And I to him, if this stream in front of us flows down from our world, why does it appear only at this border? And he to me, you know this place is circular, and all of it that you've come through, only going left, has been heading toward the bottom. Look, you haven't turned a full circle yet, so if something new happens, there's really nothing for you to marvel at. And I, again, Master, where is Phlegathon and Lethe found? I ask because you're silent about one of them, and about the other, you say how it was formed into a river. All of your questions really make me happy, he replied. But that boiling river of red should answer one of the ones you pose. Lethe, you will see, but not in this latrine. It's where the souls come to wash themselves when their absolved guilt has been crossed out. Then he said, It's time to skedaddle out of the wood. Force yourself to stay right behind me. The embankments that form our way aren't on fire and put out every falling flame. And thus we come to the end of Canto 14 and out as we start onto the sands of those who have been blasphemous, violent toward and against God. And now, some that are really strange out there, but we'll get to that in future episodes of the podcast. Here's what I want to do. I want to look up this passage. It's basically two questions, more on the hydraulics of hell, two questions that clarify further the river systems and the waters of hell, and a little bit about the waters of purgatory here. And then after that, I want to clean up some stuff from Canto 14 from listener comments, emails, DMs that have occurred over the course of these podcasts. So I'm going to sew that onto the back of this podcast. Actually, I recorded the front part of this earlier, and then I'm going to sew on the back about cleaning up stuff about Canto 14. That fascinates me. So let's get right to the passage. Remember that Virgil has explained the old man of Crete, and he said basically that their statue made out of, if you remember, gold, silver, bronze, iron, terracotta. It's got a crack in all the parts except the gold, and it's weeping tears, and these come down through the caverns and form the various rivers of hell, and then pass on down to the bottom of Cacatus. And Virgil had mentioned Acheron, Charon's river, that we've already seen in Inferno. And he mentioned sticks, and then he said Phlegathon, and our pilgrim seems a little confused. So let's look at these two questions 
and answers one after the other in this coda to Canto 14. And I to him, if this stream in front of us, the passage begins, flows down from our world, which Virgil has said it does, why does it appear only at this border? So the pilgrim seems to be saying, okay, so you're saying that all these tears come down from the old man of Crete, but, you know, I guess why aren't there waterfalls or why have I just now encountered <laughs> water falling everywhere? Or why have I just now encountered it here standing at a border? I mean, what what's going on here that I would only now see water here? Now, the pilgrim has seen water before, Acheron and Styx. Admittedly, they're not flowing downhill. At least we assume they seep out and we assume that they come over the edge and form part of the streams going down. And we assume that because of Virgil's answer to this. But this seems to be basically the question of why am I now just now seeing a stream going downhill toward the bottom? And so Virgil says, you know, this place is circular, thereby reminding us of the conical structure of hell, that it is this cone going down, 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 down toward what we now know as Cacatus. And all of it, Virgil says, that you've come through only going left has been heading toward the bottom. So we're coming down these circles, these rings, and we've been heading toward the bottom. There is a little problem here. Virgil says only going left. If you remember, they turned right as they came into the walls of Dis. Why Virgil says only going left is strange, given that once in this journey, they have turned right. Did Virgil forget that? Does that not count? Does something about entering Dis and turning right, we talked about that in the episode of the podcast, is that some connection there? Interesting because Virgil, again, just says only going left. Or did the poet originally write this so that everything was going left? And then in some kind of revision, they turned right at the walls of Dis. That seems less plausible, but it is weird that Virgil doesn't remember that once they turned right. But we're going to just blip over it and say, Virgil goes on, look, you haven't turned a full circle yet. So if something new appears, there's really nothing for you to marvel at. So just because you haven't crossed a stream going downhill doesn't mean there aren't streams going downhill. We haven't made a full circle around this thing yet. You know, we keep descending, 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 but we're coming in arcs. We walk along a little bit of an arc, and then we descend. We walk around a little bit of an arc and we descend. Obviously, the world is a big place up there and this cone must be quite big. That is Inferno. So clearly, you haven't seen all of it yet. You haven't come all around. This is further clarifying for us the natural landscape. And we should just sit back and think about this for a second. Further clarifying the natural landscape. Interesting that Dante explains the hydraulics of hell and then he wants to make sure we get all the points and so he adds this coda at the end for all the myth and all the symbolism about the old man of crete for all the interpretive knots that he presents to us he's really a naturalistic detail to explain hell's waters it's easy to forget that because it's easy to get all caught up in gold and silver and bronze and iron and get to, oh my gosh symbolism and the prophet daniel and ovid as we did and it's easy to get caught up in all of that stuff and it's there to get all caught up in and yet we must remember that the primary purpose of the old man of Crete is to explain the hydraulics of hell. Why is there water in hell? Because there's this statue on Crete that is cracked from the gold down. Well, I mean, just below the gold, it's cracked and on down. And it's weeping tears out of this 
crack. This brings up an interesting question. Since Dante is so interested in clarifying the naturalistic details of his landscape, does that mean that Dante thinks, if I go to Crete, I will see the old man of Crete inside the mountain? Okay, two things. One, this is not the modern world. You cannot get on Ryanair in Dante's day and just fly to Crete. It would be a major journey for you. That's true. Many crusaders made longer journeys, but it would still be quite a trek from where he is. So, no, you can't just get there. But does Dante then think that if someone went to Crete and actually found Mount Ida and looked inside of it, they would see this statue? I don't know. What I do know is that Dante apparently is free to rearrange our world, too. Dante is creating a great afterlife, and apparently he has just enough hubris or talent or brilliance or bravado to recreate our world. That strikes me as a poetic piece of surety. <laughs> How do I say this? That, that the poet is absolutely secure in his talent. So secure that he can recreate our world too, all in an attempt to explain the wildness of his imagined world of Inferno. Let's pass on to the second question. And I again, Master, where is Phlegathon and Lethe found? I ask because you're silent about one of them and about the other. You say I was formed into a river. So, okay, you mentioned these places and I've seen... Acheron, and I've seen sticks. Where is this Phlegathon that you speak of, which is one of the classical rivers of hell? And while we're at it, where's Lethe, one of the big rivers of the afterlife in classical mythology? So Virgil answers it. All of your questions really make me happy. So nice. For once, Virgil's not petulant about the questioning. But that boiling river of red should answer one of the ones you pose. In other words, there's Phlegathon. You're looking at it. Phlegathon has been here all along. It's where the violent against others have been standing in the boiling blood. And it's come through the wood of the suicide. We don't actually see that channel until now. It's coming out. We've come along the arc of the burning sands along this circle, and we've seen its outlet here. In other words, Phlegathon's right in front of you. This is it. This is it. Don't, don't look anyplace else for it. And then he, Virgil goes on and says, Lethe, you will see, but not in this, and I translated it latrine, ditch, sewer. The word is a little bit vulgar. It can be used for vulgar language. So I wanted latrine to give it more of that punch. Lethe you will see, but not in this latrine that is hell. And by the way, the language in Inferno, as I've told you before, is going to start coarsening more and more as we move down. It's where the souls, Virgil says, Lethe, is where the souls come to wash themselves when their absolved guilt has been crossed out. Notice what happens here. We get a further glimpse of hydraulics, but now not just the hydraulics of hell, but the hydraulics of purgatory. We're being told that Lethe is this river where souls come to wash themselves once they've repented of their sins. So once they've repented of their sins, they're going to go into Lethe and have those sins removed forever. 
there's a couple interesting things here. One, we're getting a glimpse that there's more to the hydraulics of the natural landscape than just Mount Ida, just Crete, and just hell. In fact, there's going to be hydraulics of purgatory, too, that we're going to explore. Two, Lethe, it's a classical reference. I mean, it is just one of the standard rivers of the afterlife in classical mythology, the river of forgetfulness. Often, one is dunked into Lethe to forget the sufferings and pains of one's mortal life. But notice that Dante has taken the classical river here, Lethe, and Christianized it. It's where the souls come to wash themselves when their absolved guilt has been crossed out. (laughs) There's your Christian theology sitting right there with Lethe. Once again, at the very coda of this canto, we have got the classical and the Christian world all fusing up into difficulties. And, oh man, especially when we get to Lethe, we're going to have to save that for purgatory. But especially when we get there, there are thorny knots of of heresy in every direction. <laughs> we can stub our toe on heresy. Dorney not stub our toe. Wow, my metaphors are bad, but okay, they're better in Dante. We can get ourselves into trouble with Lethe all over the place, but we should just notice here that this is a classical reference. It's a traditional river of the underworld in classical mythology, and it's been picked up here and Christianized. And then Virgil says his last bit. It's time to skedaddle out of the wood, he says. Force yourself to stay right behind me because of this falling snowfall of fire. And the embankments that form our way aren't on fire. They put out every falling flame. There's that mystery of Phlegathon. How does it put out the flames? And I explained to you that that somehow there is a vapor above Phlegathon. I don't know how blood would have a vapor that wouldn't be red. Again, is it mist rising out of the river? But even so, there's going to have to be more flames hitting it because there has to be more mist created in order to quench further flames. It's a little bit funky. It's even more funky for this reason. Dante is so insistent on cleaning up the naturalistic details in the hydraulics of hell with the old man of Crete and all the naturalistic passages we've had in Canto 14, and to suddenly not be quite clear how Phlegathon puts out this fire, that seems an interesting mystery. Maybe our poet wants to leave some things up in the air. And I'm not kidding about this. I'm not trying to give him a pass. You know I can be very hard on Dante. Maybe it's some things are utterly explainable and other things have a more mysterious aura about them, which seems like how you would write a naturalistic poem about the afterlife. After all of this intentionality about the naturalistic way water gets into hell, why this mystery? And it makes me think in the back of my head, I scratch the back of my head and say, maybe it's intentional. Maybe this is telling me not everything can be easily explained. Having done all of this and looked at this passage and finished off Canto 14, which we just did, I'm now going to add a bit to this episode. I'm actually adding this bit after these episodes have aired because I want to clean up some stuff that came in in questions through DMs, through my website, markscarborough.com. And I find these questions absolutely fascinating. So here we go. Let's take on the questions from Canto 14. 
Stephen from London writes and asks, well, before I tell you the question, because <laughs> the question blew my mind, uh, let me just set it up. Remember in the opening of this canto, I said that oh, the souls are naked, they're out on the sand. And remember I did this blithe little bit and I said, it's assumed that everybody is naked in hell. And, you know, Dante highlights it to show that their torment is worse. Remember all this bit? So Stephen writes and says, well, does that mean Virgil's nude? And that blew my mind. Wait a minute. Virgil's got a robe on. I know he's got one on. Every painting I've ever seen of Dante and Virgil, Virgil's there all clothed up, <laughs> usually in blue, maybe in lavender. Come on. Virgil is not, he's got a robe on. I know. It. How can painters lie to me? It's a very interesting question that Stephen posed. If it's assumed that the souls are nude in Inferno, wouldn't that mean Virgil is by definition nude? Now, maybe you could say those in limbo are save the embarrassment, especially in a Christian tradition, the embarrassment of their nudity because they lived exemplary lives but didn't know the Christian theology. And so maybe they're save the shame of their nudity with robes. But the poem doesn't say that. I have to posit that outside the walls of the poem itself for that to make sense. I just love the question, Stephen. Thank you so much for asking it because it literally blew my mind. And from now on, I swear to you, I am going to picture Dante in his red robe walking along this journey and a naked Virgil standing next to him, a kind of naked old man, Latin poet standing next to him. I love that more than I can say. Okay, moving on to the second question. Paul from the U.S. wrote and said that I made a claim that the violent are passive and that the punishments are enacted upon them. Remember this? I said, you know, the, the those violent against others are just stuck in the river of blood. The, the suicides are metamorphosized into trees. The economic suicides are chased by dogs. So they're having violence enacted upon them. And Paul said, well, wait a minute. Those out here on the burning sands are slapping themselves. Isn't that then they are inflicting violence on themselves? True. It is absolutely true that they are slapping themselves. I still think they're the re passive recipients of violence because they are, how do I, how do I say this? Um, the punishment is making them do something in the way that they tried to make God do something. Capaneus tried to provoke Jove and did provoke Jove into hurling that thunderbolt. And so they're being forced into this dance of the hands to slap the flames away. And it is true that they're doing violence against themselves, but they're being forced into doing that violence. It strikes me that they're still passive. But Paul, you could be right. You could be right that I've overstated the matter and that, in fact, these, the blasphemers and the ones ahead who are doing this dance of the hands, the Tresca, are actually not so passive because they're slapping themselves. I'll accept the criticism, but I'm still going to kind of hold at least in some ways to my idea that the violent are the passive recipients of violence in hell. Moving on. Daniel from South Africa brought up a fabulous point about the emotional responses that Dante gives. Do you remember this, that Dante's standing there and he sees the stream coming out and I told you that the poet always offers an emotional detail to go with the natural landscape, or I shouldn't say always, 
often offers it. And that these two things in tandem, the naturalistic detail and the emotional landscape of the pilgrim, are what make Dante so modern. And Daniel said, but I think there's a bit of a finesse you want to put on this point, and it's excellent. What he said is, when Dante looks out and looks down at the boiling river, he feels that shudder inside of himself, true enough emotional, and then he realizes that the banks of this river are stone, and the embankments and the leeway is stone, and it says, well, at least I translate it as, it dawned on me that that's the way our path lay. It's it's much more like it appeared to me or it became apparent that that's the way our path lay. And Daniel's point is that that's not an emotional response. I was taking it at that because there's a, how do I say, a freedom, a relief that you're not going to have to walk out into the burning snowfall. But Daniel said, no, that's an intellectual response. So the first response is an emotional response. The second response is a realization, which is an intellectual response. And Daniel was saying, maybe that is the methodology, the poetics that are going on in Inferno. First, there's the emotional reaction. Then there's the intellectual reaction. Daniel may be right that there may be a finesse to this that we need to look at. And if you just go all the way back to the neutrals up there before we got even into limbo, all the neutrals, we had this same idea. We had this emotional response to the pilgrim of, oh, my gosh, look at this torment. It's so horrible. I didn't think death had undone so many. And then we get the intellectual explanation for who they are and Daniel may be onto something here, that in Inferno, we are given the emotional response and then calmed down with the intellectual response. I say this is important because many people see Inferno, this is too much to say, but see Inferno as basically the correction of the will, Purgatorio as the perfection of the will, and then Paradiso as the correction and perfection of the intellect. And there may be a way we're moving from will to intellect, and especially in a medieval context, will and emotions are connected to each other. They are volitional or seen as volitional responses. So we could be we could be actually on something here, that there is an emotional response followed by an intellectual response. Nice idea. And then Dan Daniel brought up a second point, which I think is even crazier. (laughs) Thanks, Daniel. Um, It's even crazier. He said the right foot of the old man of Crete is the one that's terracotta. Fair enough. Remember, the legs are iron, and then the right foot is terracotta. And he said, hey, remember that it was Dante on the slope with his right foot, and that his right foot, way back in Canto 1, was firm on the slope, and it was his other foot that was dragging. And he said, you made this big deal about how the right foot represents the intellect, and the left foot represents the will, and that, you know, the intellect is firm, but the will is dragging. And could there be something here that this statue, what had kept Dante stable on the hill back in Canto 1, as he was slipping down, what had kept him stable there is missing or is breakable in this statue. Fascinating, Daniel. I have never seen anyone in the commentary connect the foot of the old man of Crete back to Dante's feet on that hill, but I don't think it's pressing the poem too hard to see that. I think that might be a brilliant insight. 
Now, one from me to clean up Canto 14. In one of the past episodes, I said, we need to talk more about Aristotle. We need to talk more about Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas and sewing the classical world onto the Christian world. And why is that? All that stuff. So here it is. Let's talk more about it. I want to read you a passage from Charles Freeman's book. Charles Freeman wrote a book called Holy Bones, Holy Dust, How Relics Shaped the History of Medieval Europe. And I want to read you a paragraph out of this book. It's on page 249 to 250, all credit where credit is due, because I think this helps us set up the Aristotle problem. What this book basically is, is the development of relics and relic culture and how it shaped modern Europe, that relics actually shaped Venetian power, shaped Parisian power, shaped the way cities were formed, pilgrimage spots became rich, and later those riches led to their dominance in early modern Europe. So basically relics establishing the Europe that you see today. But this is a passage about the problem of, of, of Aristotle. So let me read you the paragraph. The pagan Aristotle had been welcomed into Christian thought by the theologians Albert Magnus and Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, but not without difficulty. The whole tenor of Aristotle's approach, with its emphasis on the gathering and classification of empirical evidence, and his determination to remove the miraculous from the understanding of natural phenomena, I just want to stop right there, Aristotle is all about what we would now call the scientific method or induction, the gathering classification of empirical evidence and the determination Aristotle had to remove the miraculous from the understanding of natural phenomena. All of that, going on with Freeman's book, fitted uneasily with the God-centered cosmos of the medieval theologians. There were specific beliefs of Aristotle, the view that the soul was an integral part of the body and not immortal, and that the world had no separate moment of creation that were anathema to Christians. Yet Aristotle survived within the universities, and many of the scholastics wrote commentaries on his works, unfortunately to the extent of obscuring the vitality and breadth of his thought. Scholastic Aristotelianism was to retard intellectual progress well into the 17th century. That's a big claim at the end. But what he's saying here is that this classical world founded by Aristotle, this empirical world, Aristotle's insistence on explaining away everything so that there are no miracles, Aristotle's insistence that the soul is just part of the body and it dies with the body, Aristotle's insistence that there is no necessary act of creation to make this world— all of this gets sewn into Christian theology and then, Freeman's point is, makes a mess. And thus, there's no, according to him, no intellectual development of the 17th century. That's a little overstated, but it shows you the problem of taking this classical figure and trying to put him inside of a Christian context. And it brings us right back to this these, this three lines that we just passed in the coda of Canto 14. Lethe, as Virgil says, you will see, and not in this latrine, it's where the souls come to wash themselves when their absolved guilt has been crossed out. It's right there. It's the Christianizing of the classical imagery. There's the problem. And it's going to become a bigger problem, not directly ahead of us, certainly on down the road of this journey across the known universe. That's why you want to subscribe to this podcast. That's why you want to be on the journey with us so you can watch it happen because it's fun. 
It's unbelievably intellectually stimulating. It's emotionally satisfying. Well, it is, you know, the greatest work of Western literature after all. So let's give it its due and take a slow walk through comedy with Dante. Subscribe to the podcast, rate it, like it, drop right down to the bottom of that Apple menu. You'll see a way to write a comment. I would most appreciate it. Thanks for being on the journey with me and come back because next time we're going to have an interpolated episode and then we're passing on to Canto 15 and bringing up that whole problem of Sodom. I'm Mark Scarborough and this is Walking with Dante.